Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. The death of Russia's most vocal critic is raising serious concerns around the globe. Alexei Navalny was imprisoned multiple times, poisoned with a nerve agent, and finally sent to a jail north of the Arctic Circle, where he died Friday. Now Western leaders are squarely pointing the blame on Russian leader Vladimir Putin. From the French prime minister who wrote, In today's Russia, free spirits are being sent to the gulag and condemned to death. To the British foreign minister who added, Putin should be accountable for what has happened. And there was condemnation as well from the United States. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. Navalny's death has renewed outrage over Putin's ruthlessness in achieving his goals, as Canadian leaders and world leaders are being briefed about a new and pressing security issue involving Russia that could pose an international threat. John Bolton, former U.S. National Security Advisor for Donald Trump, joins us now. Mr. Bolton, nice to see you. Thank you for making time for us today. Glad to be with you. I'd like to begin with asking your reaction to the death of Alexei Nelvani and, and what message this sends to the world about how Putin is behaving. Well, I think uh, it clearly indicates Putin thinks he can do this or have, have his agents do it, obviously, and, uh, and, and really not suffer any penalties, not uh, be in any danger in terms of domestic uh, Russian consequences. Uh, and not fearing what uh, Europe and Canada and the United States and others around the world might do in response. So it indicates, I think, real confidence on Putin's part that uh, he can get rid of this thorn in his side and uh, uh, and, and not, not see Russia suffer any real negative uh, effects. So we have the death of Alexei Nelvani. We have the war in Ukraine. Uh, we have all of the other things that, that Mr. Putin is engaged in, including concerns about nuclear uh, capabilities in space. When you look at this picture right now, how significant do you think the threat from Russia is to Western democracies? Well, I think the threat is significant. Uh, I think Putin's near-term objectives are what he said back in 2005, uh, basically to try and recreate not the Soviet Union, but the czarist the Russian empire. Uh, Ukraine is one of the biggest pieces of that. But what happens in Ukraine or, or Belarus or Moldova and, and elsewhere in Russia has an effect on everybody in the NATO alliance. And uh, uh, I think it was a mistake for NATO not to have made Ukraine a member back in 2008 when George W. Bush suggested it. Uh, I'm not sure we'd be seeing this invasion at all if Ukraine were a part of NATO. So it's a lesson for us uh, that, uh, that will apply not just to our security in the North Atlantic, but really globally, because China and others are obviously watching what our collective response is. Donald Trump made some comments last week, which is certainly very concerning to, to all NATO members, but in particular Canada and countries that don't spend 2% saying that if Russia were to attack one of us, he would in fact encourage it. That's concerning about whether or not he would stay in the NATO alliance. And there's been some Canadian politicians who suggest that they don't think he's serious if he becomes president again uh, about blowing up NATO. You were his advisor and you know what he thinks on this. What's your perspective? Is it, is it rhetoric or is he serious? He's deadly serious. If, if there are any Canadian politicians that would like to know what it's like uh, to work with Donald Trump firsthand, I'd be glad to talk to them on a quiet basis. 
uh, I wrote in, in my book, The Room Where It Happened, about what almost uh, transpired at the uh, NATO summit in Brussels in 2018. Uh, we were right on the edge of withdrawing from NATO then. And uh, uh, fortunately, it, uh, it didn't happen. But Donald Trump has a simple view of life and uh, everything's dollars and cents. He looks at the balance sheet and Canada and others are not spending 2%. So for Americans who think that, you know, Europeans are a bunch of freeloaders to begin with, uh, it has powerful appeal. And uh, Donald Trump's urging uh, this criticism, not because he's trying to strengthen NATO, uh, as those of us who have pleaded with our allies to spend more on defense for many, many years, do it to strengthen NATO. Trump is doing this to lay the foundation to, to withdraw. And if anybody really thinks he's not serious, uh, uh, they need to think again. If Donald Trump becomes the president and Canada does not spend 2%, and, and while there was indications the government says they're spending more, they're, they're nowhere near that 2% target, what do you think the consequences will be for our country? Well, as with many things Trump says or some of his, uh, his advisors are saying, that we'll have a two-tiered NATO where the U.S. will work with countries that spend more than 2%, but will let the rest fend for themselves. Uh, you know, this is at, in, at one level, it's a evidence of how Trump misapprehends the alliance. We're, we're not in NATO out of charity. We're not defending Canada because we want to be nice to Canada. We're defending uh, the alliance as a whole because it's in America's interest to defend the alliance as a whole. Uh, and therefore, this idea that you can have a two tiered NATO simply doesn't work. And I'll just take Canada as an example. Uh, because you're right next door, uh, we can't defend the United States effectively against incoming Russian or Chinese intercontinental ballistic missiles or, or heavy bombers uh, without being able to work together with Canada. Uh, this goes back to the early days of the Cold War, the, the, uh, the, the dew line, the distant early warning line in Canada, Alaska, uh, to, to alert us to missiles coming from uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, you can't have an alliance with donut holes in it that allow Russia, China, or somebody else to exploit them. So uh, it, what, what will happen is that if Trump tries to withdraw or decides he's only going to uh, support countries that are spending 2%, is the alliance effectively will collapse. Uh, honestly, the one thing I could say in the short term is spend more on defense. We're all going to need to. My own view is the the range of threats that the U.S. faces around the world mean our spending will have to go from something in the range of three and a half percent of GDP back to the levels we spent in the Reagan years between five and six percent. That means everybody else in NATO is going to have to come up, too. So we can either get serious about the threats we face around the world, not not just from China and Russia, but from North Korea, from Iran, from a continued threat of international terrorism, uh, or, or we could suffer the consequences. What is Donald Trump's relationship like with, with some of these regimes? And I'm thinking in particular his relationship with Putin and his relationship with the Iranian regime. Trump sees international affairs as being equivalent to the personal relationship uh, that heads of state have with each other. So in Trump's case, if he has a good personal relationship with Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, then he thinks the United States has a good relationship with Russia or China. That's that's extremely simplistic. And indeed, when you face really hard men like Putin and Xi, uh, they're not going to let uh, 
personal relationships sway them from their effort to advance their own national interest. But but that's not how uh, Trump sees it. And, and, and that's one of the reasons I think the likes of Putin and Xi are looking forward to Trump coming back because they think, to put it bluntly, he's an easy mark. Iran is of increasing concern and obviously increasing discussion with what's been happening in the Middle East and all of these Iranian-backed militias who have been engaging uh, American troops, bombing them on bases with drones, with what's happening in Gaza. And I know that you personally have been targeted by Iran. And we've been talking more and more in Canada about the Iranian regime interfering here, targeting dissidents from Iran, trying to hire the Hell's Angels to carry out assassination attempts. Do you think that Western countries are fully cognizant of the threat that Iran poses? Iran's threat uh, for most of the rest of the world is is uh, comprised both of uh, terrorism and, you know, Ronald Reagan designated Iran a state sponsor of terrorism, the first one ever so designated back in his administration, uh, and also Iran's continued pursuit of nuclear weapons and ballistic missile delivery systems. So the Iranian effort to assassinate, uh, in this case, uh, former American officials that they're unhappy with or Iranian dissidents around the world in Europe and in North America is a very real threat. And it tells you exactly what the character of the regime is uh, and why attempts to negotiate something with them, uh, while they may seem idealistic, are totally wrongheaded because the Iranians have absolutely no intention of honoring those commitments. Mr. Bolton, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Russian President Vladimir Putin is facing widespread international condemnation for Alexei Navalny's death, including from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Alexei Navalny has been, uh, had been an extraordinary fighter for uh, human rights, uh, for democracy, and someone who was standing up for the Russian people, standing up with extraordinary courage uh, for uh, a better future for Russia and for Russians. Uh, and uh, we know how much that scares and continues to scare Vladimir Putin. Navalny's wife was attending the Munich Security Conference when the news broke. It's a who's who of global leaders and national security officials. And that's where we reached Defence Minister Bill Blair. Minister Blair, thank you so much for joining us. Can we begin with the news of Nelvani's death and, and what sort of reaction you're hearing in Munich to this concerns about what it might mean in terms of Russia's intentions? Well, and I, I can't tell you, Mercedes, Navalny's wife uh, is here at the conference and, and actually spoke at the conference after word of his, of his death was made public. Um, it was very emotional, I think, for very many of the participants. And I think it really places um, a, a great deal of, of punctuation and, and concern on, on one, of the, one of the main themes of this conference is Russia's, Russians' illegal in, intervention in invasion of Ukraine. Um, and, the, you know, it is clearly evidence of the impressive regime that exists there, and and, and it was a, a very important topic of discussion here among the, the security leaders of the world who have, have convened. Is Canada doing enough to hold Russia accountable? Well, you know, we've had, we've had a number of discussions. I was I was actually uh, uh, having a conversation earlier today with with uh, Senator Peter Beam, who's who's here as well. Uh, the Senate his Senate committee has recently done a study on on the effectiveness of sanctions, and we talked about. Those things, Canada has implemented significant sanctions against the Russian regime. We are obviously, uh, you know, stalwartly in support of 
Ukraine's uh, defense of, of the illegal invasion of their country. But I think as, as well, part of the discussion that's taking place here among, among world leaders is what more can be done. And, and, and I, I think that, that, you know, Canada has already taken some very important steps, but we're going to continue to explore ways in which we can hold this very oppressive regime to account. One of the steps that could be taken is more defense spending. And of course, that was on the radar a great deal last week with Donald Trump's comments about uh, basically blowing up NATO. And, and not only that, but encouraging Russia to attack countries like Canada, who do not meet the 2% of GDP. He could be the next president of the United States. In light of the global security situation, Russian aggression and Trump's comments, is your government reconsidering the amount you're spending on defense? And I'm not referring to the commitments you've already made. Are you looking at committing more to get to that 2%? And, and, and this very simple answer is, yes, we are looking to do more. Canada must do more and needs to do more. We will be doing more uh, with respect to defense spending. But with respect to, the, and it's not in response um, to, the, to, the, to the rhetorical comments that, that were made in the U.S. presidential election. I'm actually pretty confident. I've been part of in, engaging with uh, NATO leaders. I spent two days in Brussels this week. There is a remarkable commitment among all NATO members, including Canada, to, to, uh, to have a very positive projection in defense spending, to invest in the things that are going to make our alliance stronger, to continue to assist Ukraine. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think when Mr. Putin invaded Russia two years ago, his intention was actually to challenge uh, uh, the NATO alliance. It's had exactly the opposite effect. And I'm actually confident that former President Trump had an opportunity to see the, the unity of purpose, the strength and resolve of, of the NATO alliance to, to significantly increase their defense spending, but to do it in a coordinated, collaborative way and working together. I think he would have a greater appreciation of the value of NATO. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm confident um, in, in NATO's commitment. And I'm also confident in the United States continued support of, of that commitment. Does that mean you would meet 2%, though? I think that's sort of the yes-no question people are interested in. Well, and, and what I can tell you is, is, first of all, we have significantly increased our defense spending. Um, through 2026, we had already planned to increase our spending from 2017 by 70%. But we've, we're coming from a long way back, Mercedes. In, in 2014, under the previous government, our defense spending actually fell below 1%. So we've been making some very significant investments in a national shipbuilding strategy. We've been acquiring fighter jets and, and, and multi-mission aircraft uh, for our Air Force. And, and recently we've been making, I think, some very significant announcements in some of the equipment needs that, that our, our, our forces require. But we recognize that we need to do more. Um, I will tell you a priority for me as the Canada's Minister of National Defense is, is security of our continent and, and investments that are going to maintain the security and sovereignty of Canada's high Arctic. We're working very closely with our American partners on the NORAD modernization. We're putting $40 billion additional into that. There, there are additional investments that we have to make. Um, I, I, I believe I've been able to present a, a credible uh, path forward to our NATO allies, but, but there are additional investments that are going to have to be made. And I'm very confident that, that the government will be bringing more information on that, um, certainly um, in, in leading up to the NATO uh, Leaders Alliance uh, meeting that's going to take place in Washington in June. Speaking of NORAD, last time this year we were talking about Chinese balloons in the sky and, and there was sort of this panic about whether or not we could protect our own aerospace. That continues to be a concern. I wonder if you're worried about, under a Trump presidency, NORAD being threatened as well. If, if he's willing to say that he would pull out of NATO and some of his former very close advisors say it's not just a, an idle threat, he's thought about this, does that potentially jeopardize NORAD and, and, by extension, Canada's sovereignty? 
Well, I, I will tell you, I'm, I'm not worried, but I'm highly motivated. I was in Colorado just last week. I went, I went to Colorado Springs to the, to the NORAD headquarters. We, we had a change of command ceremony. I met with the Deputy Secretary of Defense. We have talked about the very significant investments that both Canada and the United States have to make in modernizing a NORAD, is, and, and particularly in such things as over-the-horizon radar and over-the-polar radar systems that are going to enable us to do a much better job of not just dealing with the Chinese balloons that we saw last year, but, but in, in order to secure missile defense and, and, and aeronautic defense in North America. We're highly made it motivated, and, and we've already committed significant money, about $39 billion, um, over, over the next several years in, in order to make those investments. Um, the work's important. It's, it's essential. Canada has a responsibility to ensure that we are able to defend um, our, our own sovereign territory. We know that that's going to require significant new investment, that we're absolutely committed to do it. As I say, I'm, I'm not worried. I am resolved. And we're going to, to, to do that work and get the job done. I want to turn to the situation in the Middle East. You were very categoric at the beginning of this war between Israel and Hamas that Hamas has to be eliminated. With the discussions about Israel going into Rafah, and now that we're several months into this, I'm wondering, do you still feel that way, that the end goal of this must be that Hamas is eliminated or no longer has military capability? And, and to be clear, what I was talking about was eliminating the terrorist threat that had brought that terrorist act, act, uh, act to the people of Israel and killed, killed so many innocent lives. Um, I, I, I still believe, though, that collectively um, Israel has a right to defend itself and that we have to eliminate that terrorist threat. But eliminating that terrorist threat can't be done at the expense of, of the Palestinian people. There's a lot of innocent people who have, have suffered and we're very concerned, and our, our government has expressed that concern. Uh, to continue military action in the Rafah area, we, we have called for the humanitarian ceasefire, the, the provision of immediate aid, and we continue to call for the to release of those hostages. You know, we, we, we are very much hopeful for peace. And at the same time, we are remain concerned about the ability of terrorist organizations to continue uh, to, 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 to engage in extremist violence. Do you support the calls for a ceasefire? And I don't mean a temporary humanitarian one, but a ceasefire that some in your government have been saying is necessary. The Israelis say they won't be able to pursue Hamas uh, and end their military capability if that's the case. And yet you also have extensive civilian casualties. Yeah, I'm very hopeful that, that, that Israel can continue to, to, to pursue Hamas, but do it in a way which does not put literally millions of innocent uh, Palestinian people in, in jeopardy. I, I, I believe that, that our government's been very clear that, that we support an immediate uh, humanitarian ceasefire accompanied by the release of those hostages and aid going into those people. Um, we, we continue to support uh, Israel's um, efforts to eliminate that threat, but it can't be at the expense of the Palestinian people. Uh, do you agree with your colleague Rob, Rob Oliphant's comments that were recorded on a Zoom call and released? He was very critical of the government's position. He did not think that funding should have been taken away from UNRWA uh, and that he thought that more needed to be done. Are you on the same page as him? First of all, I think Rob, uh, I know Rob Oliphant really well. He's a thoroughly decent and principled man. Um, I think many of, of my colleagues I have been conflicted. And, and on the one hand, we I think we generally accept it and, and strongly support Israel's right to defend itself against uh, a terrorist organization. And at the same time, we're human beings. And, and th you know, there is compassion for those innocent civilians who've been impacted by, by the war that has, has been taking place in Gaza. And, and, and I know, I know, I know Rob very well, and, and I'm sure he's been deeply moved by the plight of those innocent civilians. 
And, and you know, one of the things I think is this, the strength of our government is that diversity of opinion is, is actually, I think, our strength. And, and so, you know, I, I, I don't uh, I, I think that the, the position that the government has taken is, is the right one. But I understand and I, and I have some something sympathy for you know, concerns that are being expressed by a number of my colleagues. Minister Blair, thank you so much for joining us from Munich today. Of course, Mercedes. Now for one last thing. Environment Minister Stephen Guibault has been a lightning rod for the Liberal government. He's charged in part with getting Canada to net zero emissions by 2050. Now, navigating that road was never going to be easy or lacking in controversy. But the minister made things a lot worse for himself this week when he executed a major self-inflicted wound. The stunning statement that the government would stop investing in roads in a country as big and rural and northern as Canada was met by outrage from many, including some provinces. The minister clarified to say he did not mean all roads, but rather one specific project. I was talking specifically about projects like the Troisième Lien that the, the, the CAC government in Quebec wants to, wants to move forward with. The change in tone came the same week that the feds rebranded their carbon rebate check. This after the carbon tax has become a regular and effective Tory attack line. Why won't he follow the facts and axe the tax? The changes and controversy come months after the government issued a temporary carbon tax carve-out for home heating oil. And while the Liberals may have had every intention of investing in roads, the repeated fumbles seem to come down to a tone deafness in message. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.